Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation 3, we are... We have arrived at the third and final of the seven churches of Revelation. And uh, it would be inaccurate to say we have saved the best for last. uh, Because Jesus ain't got nothing good to say about this church. So uh, we've saved the last for last, I guess you can say. Revelation chapter 7, found on page 1090 of your pew Bibles. If you will, stand with me out of reverence for God's holy word. John writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, verse 14. To the church, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works, you are neither cold nor hot, would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, naked. I counsel you to buy from me a gold refined by fire so you may be rich and white garments so you may clothe yourselves. The shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Poet, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit on my throne as I also conquer and sat down with with my Father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, thank you for your love and your mercy. Thank you for uh, giving us the opportunity to open your word. We trust to be challenged by it and grow in it. Lord, open our hearts that we would receive your word, our mind that we would understand it, our eyes we'd see your glory, our ears that we would hear and heed your word, our mouth we would speak the hope of the gospel. And, and, and our hands and our feet that we will go in obedience. May we be hot or cold and not lukewarm. Name your glory, son, we pray. Amen. May you be seated. September 20th, 2001. I remember where I was. It was the day that the President of the United States, President George W. Bush, gave a speech to the joint session of Congress following the attacks on 9 11. In that speech, he gave, uh, he mentioned several things. I'm sure many of you who remember 9-11 remember the the emotions were still raw, confusions were still real, uncertainty was reality, war was inevitable. And in that speech, perhaps what is most remembered is the language the president used in defining for where we're going as a nation on the international scale and even nationally. He said, quote, We will starve terrorists of funding, turn them against one another, drive them from place to place until there is no refuge or no rest. And we will pursue nations that provide aid or safe haven to terrorism. Every nation in every region now has a decision to make. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorist. Or, as you may recall with that Texas slang, terrorist, right? right? In nuclear and terrorist. <laughs> you know, but, uh, but, but it, it is, I remember hearing that. And that was clarity black and white. You are either with us or you are with our enemy. 
Now, that was the standard operating practice of the nation, and sometimes it got really goofy. Anyone remember that uh, you were unpatriotic if you ordered French fries? Anyone remember that? You had to call them freedom fries? I can't be honest. To this day, I will jokingly order, I'll have a double cheeseburger and freedom fries stat, right? You know, just sort of out of out of goofiness. And the reason wasn't that that the French were in favor of the terrorists, but because they didn't provide something we thought we were entitled to or whatever it, it might be. But that black or white mentality, you're either on this side or that side. And what we have here with this final church, the church of Laodicea, is very clear thinking. You are either here or you are there. There is no middle ground. Notice here the introduction in verse 14. Now, this introduction starts the same way that every introduction has started of the seven letters. You, you, we know who the recipients are right from the beginning. This is the way all Greco-Roman uh, letters would have been written. Here, the recipient is the church of Laodicea. Laodicea is actually mentioned elsewhere in Scripture, uh, closely associated with the church of Colossae. You can read the final chapter of Colossians for, for more on that. So you get the recipient, the first part of, of, of each letter, and then you get the author. And the author in all seven letters is obviously Jesus. And, and what we get in how Jesus identifies himself, he doesn't say, to the church of East Frankfurt, your boy Jesus. Rather, what he says is he identifies himself in such a way relating to what was introduced in chapter 1 that was unique to that church that met their needs. So let's, let's, let's go back and look at each of these, if you will, since, since we're rounding at the end. In Ephesus, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Remember, there's golden lampstands and, and stars. You have the messengers of the seven churches, right? In uh, Smyrna, you get the words of the first and the last who, who died and came back to life. Remember, Smyrna was a very persecuted church. Likewise, we get with Pergamum, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. They too were a persecuted church. Uh, Thyatira, uh, I'll get it up there eventually, in verse uh, 18, chapter 2, verse 18. The words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. Sardis uh, had the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Again, another reference to the seven stars. In Philadelphia, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. Now, remember that each of these descriptions are taken from chapter 1. So if you read through chapter 1, you're going to see each of these pop up. However, when we come to Laodicea, this reference to Jesus as the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation, none of that is found in chapter 1. We have a unique description of Christ introduced to us here to this church. Now, we see two things about Jesus here. First of all, Jesus is described as the Amen. Now, Jesus' reliance on the Hebrew Bible is evident, not just in this letter, but really throughout the entirety of Revelation. You can't understand Revelation without first reading uh, the Old Testament, right? It is saturated with Old Testament references, hints, and, and, and quotations. Now, the word Amen is probably a word that we Baptists should understand. After all, we have prayed several times already this morning, and every prayer ended the same way. Amen. 
The word amen means so be it or let it be true or it is true, something to, to, to that extent. It is a term of affirmation. And we get this throughout the Bible. Let me give you just a few examples here. Psalm 106, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel from everlasting, everlasting. And let all the people, all the Baptists say, amen, praise the Lord. One Chronicles, bless the Lord, the God of Israel from everlasting, everlasting. And all the people said, amen, and praise the Lord. Yeah, seems like I just read that. Uh, Psalm 41, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Amen. Amen. You notice a pattern here. Psalm 72. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Psalm 89, 52. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. That word means it is an affirmation. Now, Jesus uses this term all the time, but you may not find it in your English Bibles. It's because we don't translate it amen. We translate it usually as truly or most assuredly, I say to you. So in John's gospel in particular, not limited to John, Jesus will say, truly, truly, I say to you, right? You're familiar with, with that introduction to a proverbial statement that Jesus gives. The Greek literally says, amen, amen, I say to you. It's all over the gospels, the word amen. It speaks of truth and affirmation. It speaks of faithfulness. Now, what is unique here is there's a word before, the, before amen, isn't it? It's the word the, the article. That's odd, isn't it? I mean, we don't conclude our prayers with, in Jesus' name, the amen. We could. That would be a perfectly fine one because you notice there it's a title, not, 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 not simply a, a, a word there. It, it, it is a, a title. Much the same way, uh, whenever I want to illustrate that I'm, I'm becoming an, an aging man, I like to refer to social media outlets as the Facebook, the Twitter, the TikTok, uh, the uh, MySpace, the Netscape, you know, all the things the youths are, are, are on right now. Uh, but I like to put the in there because it sounds weird. It makes me feel old. And I've reached the point in my life where I find it a badge of honor when young people think I am old and uncool. Like when I was their age, I thought I'll never be that guy. And now I'm, I'm wanting to be the guy holding the flag going in the banner saying I am proud I am uncool. Right. I don't know about you. It's just just my my problems. But the in front of it makes it a title. The amen. Now, in Hebrew thought, the amen comes to be known as the God of the amen or the God of truth. Let me give you just one example of this to show you. I didn't make that up and steal it from a commentary. So that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of amen. The God of truth. So in identifying himself as the amen, Jesus is taking for himself a title of deity, a title claiming to be the truth. Now that sounds familiar, doesn't it? We've read this somewhere. I think it's somewhere around John 14, 6. I am the way. I am the truth. After all, he is the great amen. But not only is he identified as the amen, he's identified as the beginning of God's creation. Here we have to be a little careful and not be little heretics, okay? The ancient heresy of Arianism, which today is primarily in the movement called Jehovah Witnesses, not limited to that, but perhaps the more prominent movement that holds to ancient Arianism, where they argue that Jesus is the first 
creature created by God. So Jesus isn't eternal. He isn't divine. He isn't any of that. He is the first thing God created who then created everything else. And they would use a verse like this. This is not what is being described here. What is intended here is to see the word beginning not as passive, that is Jesus becomes the beginning, but rather it is active. Jesus is the beginning of all the beginnings. Right? That's the point. He is the beginning. We, we get this throughout the Bible. John 1, 1 to 4, right? In the beginning was the Word. And we know that the Word is Jesus. Nothing came into being that is in being apart from, from Him. Same thing in Colossians 1. We get Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. There's that language again. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. All things were created through him and, note that, for him. Paul will go on to argue that he holds all things together. This is the one who addresses Laodicea, the divine creator who is the true one. And this is the introduction. This is Jesus, the one they need to see and know. That then leads us to the indifference of verses 15 to 17. Now, verse 15 is perhaps the verse of all seven chapters, the first three chapters, uh, or seven churches, that we're most familiar with. We could quote it because we've heard it a thousand times. I know your works. That isn't unique. We've seen that in all seven of the churches. You are neither cold nor hot, would that you would be either cold or hot. Now, Jesus says he knows their works, but with each church, he has something nice to say about them, right? Have you ever tried that? You want to let someone down softly? It never works out, but at least you try, right? How do you do that? Well, you start out with small talk and you say nice things, and then you let the ball drop. That's really what Jesus has done in a lot of these churches, right? Not all of them. He'll say something nice and say, but here's, here's the real problem. And, and if we don't address this problem, things are going to collapse. In Laodicea, he's saying, I know your works, and that is not a compliment. And notice what he says here, that you are neither hot or cold, you are lukewarm. And so disgusting is this, he wants to spit you out of his mouth. Now, I don't know about you, but I am perfectly fine if I get out a, 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 a glass of Coca-Cola, sugar and all, and it is neither hot nor cold. Now, what about you? You like lukewarm Coca-Cola? Well, this year's not as sanctified as I am. I get this from my father, who's worse than me, right? Um, I, I, I will. If, if, uh, in fact, if, if it's in the refrigerator, what you need to do, you need to get it out. And you need to let it sit for about 10 or 15 minutes. And it's really starting to sweat a little bit, but some of that sweat is starting to go away. That is the perfect moment. It's, it, it's got a little bit of cold in it, but it's not too cold. In fact, I'm so bad about this. When I go to a restaurant... I want a Coca-Cola or Pepsi, whatever it is they have, without ice. That is what I want. Why we put ice and dilute what is already delicious is beyond me. But that's neither here nor there. I, I didn't mean to get, to get distracted by that. What does Jesus mean by hot or cold or lukewarm? Well, there's really two options. There's one perhaps you're most familiar with, and this is the option of choosing. Jesus said, I want you to be either hot or cold, right? And what does he mean by that? How, how, is it, how have you always heard this preach? You know, say, well, you can be hot and on fire for Jesus, or you could be cold-hearted and reject him, right? And that's the way we present it. In fact, Jesus would rather you believe in him or reject him. But don't play in between, right? Every revival growing up, the evangelist would preach this text, this verse, and he'd make that application. 
He would call everyone. I need you to choose this day. You're going to be hot for Jesus or you're going to be cold against Jesus, right? And that's the way it would be presented. And so in matters of salvation, you can't ride the fence. You're either a believer or a non-believer. There is another way to, to read this that actually I think is more accurate. And you can correct me if I'm wrong afterwards. You're going to anyways. Um, and that is to speak of consistency. Why do we assume that hot means faith and cold means unbelief? Cold water is good, right? In fact, you know, the, a few weeks ago I went to the, uh, uh, the, the Southern Baptist Annual Convention. And the best part of any convention or conference is, of course, the free swag you'll get, right? You know what swag stands for, right? Stuff we all get. T-shirts and, and uh, little uh, uh, canister things to drink from and pens galore. I, I am a pen collector of these things, right? Why do we buy pens when you can get like a thousand of them at a conference and you're good for a couple years, right? You just claim, oh yeah, I love your product. Here, can I have three pens, right? And you get all this swag. The best swag I got was a towel, but it's not just a, just a towel you wipe your, 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 your brow with. Rather, what it is, is you put it under water and then you pop it like three to five times according to the instructions. And I'm a man, I always follow the instructions. You pop it. And it gets super ice cold. Put it around your neck, and oh man, and these hot summer days. Like they wouldn't long ago, I went running. I went on my long run. It was, it was like 85 degrees outside. I, I, I was sweating like a sinner on Judgment Day. And I, I was just, just miserable. My water had gotten lukewarm, as so I won't spit it out of my mouth. Uh, we, we should read a verse about that. And I come home, and I, and I pop that tap, and oh, it was just a blessing from God. Cold is good. Many of y'all look to me and I talk about lukewarm Coca-Cola and you're like, no, I want it cold. Of course you do, right? You want cold water on a hot summer day, a cold lemonade on those hot summer days. Cold is good. Hot is good. Unless you're a pagan and want cold uh, coffee, we like our hot drinks, don't we, right? Hot is good. In fact, what we get here is, is that six miles from Laodicea was a city called Aeropolis. And there was a famous warm spring there that many believed were medicinal. We get these sort of medicinal springs in the Bible. Remember the man who, who thought if he could get into the spring, he would be healed, but he couldn't. He, he was lame. He couldn't get anyone to carry him in there until he meets Jesus. Jesus is, is the medicinal spring there. And so you have one of these. Well, the problem is, is that Laodicea has no source of water in it. Okay? We, we call this Los Angeles. And, and so what would happen is that warm spring, the water would calm down. And by the time it got to Laodicea, it was lukewarm. It lost its, its usefulness. The same thing happens with the city of Colossae, which is 11 miles away. Colossae has a cool spring of pure, cold water. However, whenever that spring finds its way to Laodicea, guess what happens? It ain't cold no more. It is lukewarm. In fact, when you put these together, what the Laodiceans had was not just nasty water, but water they couldn't drink. It was neither hot or cold. It wasn't anything they could consume. So what's the point here? The point that Jesus is making is that these Christians, this church, was too much like its city. Too much like its water. Detestable. This is a word of condemnation. The church had grown indifferent. They neither loved nor hated anything. They relied on their self. 
They relied on their resources and refused to rely solely on Christ and the saving gospel. Now, that metaphor of lukewarmness is demonstrated in verse 17, where he says, You say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You see, like the city around them, they trust in their riches. The city of Laodicea was a rich, wealthy town. In fact, do you remember we talked about two weeks ago when we looked at the Church of Philadelphia? There was that great earthquake that destroyed the city. You remember what the Philadelphians did? What they did was, was they reached out to Caesar, who provided resources and financial aid to the city to help it rebuild. Thus, the city of Philadelphia changed its name in honor of that Caesar. Laodicea was affected by the same earthquake, was destroyed by the same earthquake, but they had a different response. They all got together and said, you know what? We are so rich. We, we, we have so much here. We don't need help from the federal governments. We can take care of it of ourselves. And what Jesus is showing us here is that you are no different. This church believes it is rich when in fact they are poor. This, you may recall, is the opposite of what Jesus wrote to the persecuted Smyrnans. Remember in chapter 2, verse 9, he, he, he said, I apparently didn't put it up here, I know your tribulation and your poverty. Remember that? And then in parentheses he adds, but you are rich. See, it was the impoverished church who were rich. It was the wealthy church who was poor. You see, they think so long as the pews were relatively full, the budget was met, and everything looked stabled, everything must be okay. But no one seemed to care about, about the anemic prayer lives of its members. No one seemed to care about the impotent preaching from its pulpit. No one seemed to care about the poor discipleship of believers. No one seemed to care about the lack of evangelism. No one seemed to care about the poor worship so long as the parking lot was full. They think they are rich and full and blessed, but Jesus says you are in fact wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You know what, you know what is ironic about particularly those last three descriptions, poor, blind, and naked, is they are rich. We talked about that. He speaks of blindness. It was in Laodicea. They discovered a, 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 a what's, what's the term? It's, it's a saw, if you see it there in verse 18, that would be used to, to people's eyes that would actually bring healing powers. It would help people who were struggling with blindness and other eye ailments. So he says, you think you can see because you have these medical advancements. You're blind, naked. Well, uh, 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 Laodicea was the center of a certain fiber that was commonly used in, in, in trade. And so they made all this money in, in, in the clothing market. And so he says, you think you are clothed, but in fact you are naked. Jesus here is the boy who is telling the emperor, in this case a church, you are indeed without clothes. You think everything is okay. The problem is you're not hot. You're not cold. You're nasty. You're lukewarm. You are nothing. And this leads finally to the invitation of verses 18 to 22. Each letter includes an invitation of some sort, yet this letter has, has an invitation that is much stronger and it dominates much of the letter. Notice he starts with repentance in verse 18 and 19. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so you may be rich, white garments so you may clothe yourself, 
uh, from the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Um, those whom I love and reprove and, and, and discipline to be so be zealous and repent. Notice he, the way he illustrates repentance here. First of all, by go refined by fire. To a city and church that trusts in his riches, Jesus turns to the monetary world to make, to, to make a point. This is not Caesar's goad. This is goad that can only be found in Christ. It is refined. It is pure. This goad, Jesus speaks of, will make them rich, a riches that surpasses material wealth. They are spiritually poor, but Christ offers them riches that are surpassing all that they could ever own. Likewise, he says, not only should you be rich uh, with gold refined by fire, you should be clothed. The gold is refined. The garments are white. Clearly, purity and holiness is the emphasis here. They are poor and need to be enriched. They are naked and need to be clothed, as, as we saw. The imagery of being clothed in the white garment in Revelation throughout the Bible frequently describes cleansing purity and grace. This is all an, an appeal to repentance. When dirty, we need to be cleansed. When impoverished, we need to beg. When sinful, we need to repent. And that's what he says there in verse 19. Be zealous and repent. Don't just put it on the calendar sometime in the future. Don't just say, I'll get to it whenever the time is convenient. No, no, you be zealous. It's something you must strive for. You must pursue with all your being. Repent. And not only repent, he says, you need to respond, verses 20 and 22. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on the throne as I conquered and sat down my father on his throne. We've talked about the language of conquering before. But I would say next to the lukewarm language, this verse of Jesus standing at the door knocking is perhaps the most well-known verse of the seven churches, the first three chapters of Revelation. It preaches well, doesn't it? Right? I'm willing to bet every uh, revival we've ever been to Preacher's going to preach this verse, right? He's got two verses already he's got figured out. Lukewarm, right? I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. And the other is a sin at the door knock. He may put them in the same sermon, but, it, but if, he's, if he's low on options, he can put it in the two sermons if he's real creative, right? And it works really good as an invitation. There is Jesus just knocking, knock, knocking on uh, the church door and, and hoping someone will just let him in. Just knocking on the, 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 the heart. And will you let Jesus in? Won't you let Jesus into your hearts? Is that what is meant in this text, though? This is why we say a text without context is a pretext for a proof text. It preaches well. It's just not good next to Jesus. What door is Jesus knocking on? Is it your hearts? You're not in this text, are you? It's the church's door. Hey, you guys who you think you're hot, you're not. You think you're cold, you're not. You're lukewarm, and I want to vomit you out of my mouth. I'm standing at the front door. It's a shame, isn't it, that here you have a local church, and the one person unwelcome is Christ himself. The one person you won't find inside of its, its, its sanctuary is Christ himself. I stand at the door and knock. You see, if Christ is knocking on the door of your heart and you're unredeemed, what he finds on the inside is a skeleton. He can't answer the door. What we need is to be revived. What we need is to be resurrected. 
But here he stands at the door of the church, which means the application of the passage is not me, it is primarily us. Christ is standing here. Here he says, people have gathered and yet I am not there. I stand at the door and knock. This is a call to the church to respond with repentance. Yes, it includes individuals. And individuals must respond, but it is a call for the entire community of believers to repent. Can we say as American Christians, Frankfurtonian Christians, I don't know what the term would be, as we've gone through these seven churches, clearly it is as if Christ is still speaking to us today. And we've come to the end of these seven churches. Some were loveless, some were persecuted. Some were dead, and some were lukewarm. And I believe the same could be said for the average American evangelical church right now. For many of us, we think, well, the budget is fine. The pews are full. The parking lot is, is at full capacity. Everything must be okay. And there stands Jesus. You're neither hot nor cold. Just a going through the motions. Right now, right now, American Christians are spending millions of dollars, millions and billions of dollars on missions, programs, building projects, and media just to get the gospel out. And no other time in church history was that even imaginable what it is we are accomplishing right now. Yet, our numbers Continue to dwindle. How is it that a poor church in the first century, Asia Minor, have members in the church who were killed by Caesar, killed by the local governments, and yet are busting at the seams and souls are being saved, families being transformed, lives being changed, poor in the American eyesight, and are rich in abundance? And then there's the average American church rich in wealth, rich in opportunity, rich in resources, and yet we are dying and decaying. Why is that? How is it that right now, Christians in modern China must meet in secret if their homes can't hold them? Right now, Christians in Iran must meet in secret if they're turning the world upside down. Maybe the key isn't about budgets, buildings, youth groups, programs, or how professional the pastor carries himself. Maybe the point is that the church is to be about Christ. And in this church, Sadly, he's not been welcomed in. Do we, dear church, need to repent? Do you? Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would be so kind as to convict our hearts. Lead us ever.